All right. Well, it is my joy this evening to introduce to you a man that many of you may not know personally. You probably have heard of his name, uh, but he is a dear, a dear example to me, a wonderful example, and it is a joy for us to have him here with us this evening, especially as you will find out tonight as you hear his testimony. His name is Greg Harris. He is the department head for Bible exposition at the Master's Seminary, so I am his junior colleague. Usurper. <laughs> I'm your, your junior by many years and in many degrees, too. Uh, he did his study at Talbot Theological Seminary, received a Master of Divinity and a Master of Theology degree there, and then went to uh, Dallas Theological Seminary, where you received your, your doctoral degree. Uh, Greg joined the faculty at the Master's Seminary in 2006. He is retiring from the Master's Seminary this year. So you are in your final weeks here at the Master's Seminary. As I said, I became a junior colleague to Dr. Harris in 2013 when I arrived and joined the faculty here at the Master's Seminary. And, and I remember one very interesting experience as I got to know Dr. Harris, because I had not known him before 2013. So I've known him for six years, but uh, before that, I, I didn't really know who he was. I had been in, the, in Russia for the years that you had served prior to my arrival. But one time uh, we had together was, was, was really unique. We were on a faculty retreat. I don't know if you know or remember this. You probably do. But we, we roomed together at a faculty retreat, and uh, you have some pretty strange... Um, Strange requirements for uh, uh, for the noise in the room. Uh, there, you, you turned on the sound of a waterfall, and you turned on a white noise machine. <laughs> and I was staying in the same room, and and uh, I didn't tell you this at the time, but I think I slept a total of half an hour <laughs> that night. <laughs> but it was worth it. I, I'm I'm glad for that experience. I have enjoyed. Uh, seeing Dr. Harris uh, in ministry here. He is a man that I know of because of his love for the Word of God. He is a, uh, he, he's known for his special love for the students here at the Master's Seminary. He's got a great sense of hu- humor, and he's got a very deep commitment to prayer. And uh, in addition to that, what really makes him unique, at least to me, and, and makes him a model for me, a man from whom I need to learn much, it's, it's your experience with suffering and pain. And we're going to talk a lot about that tonight. But before we get there, I, I want to ask, the first question is, how did the Lord save you? Give us a summary of your testimony. I'm one of those guys that... When they go around in Sunday school class and say, what year were you saved? I say, I was either saved at age 11 or age 23. I don't know. I did the prodigal son route to my shame. I did the prodigal son route when I was in college. Uh, never, I didn't go there to hate my parents or anything like that. I just lusted the flesh, lusted eyes. The boastful pride of life was enough. And I never doubted that God was God, that the Bible was the Bible, and that I was sinning. So I don't know if I was saved then and living in sin, 
And I don't know if I I prayed a prayer on October night. Uh, I had just started teaching eighth grade in the public school. And if nothing will take you to your knees, it's like teaching eighth grade in the public school. And so I prayed that, Lord, I don't know if I'm saved or not. If I am saved, I want to come home. If I'm not saved, I want to be saved. And just as unemotional as you won't catch up with those french fries type thing. I expected something. I expected it was a full moon. I expected the moon to wink or an angel to flutter. And nothing happened. And I had just started teaching eighth grade in Garner, North Carolina. It's a suburb of Raleigh. And I had an eighth grader meet me at my door there. And he said, Mr. Harris, are you a Christian? And I remember just blushing profusely and blubbering uh, like a blowfish, presuming they blubber, and that with that. And then... Uh, so just kind of from that, and someone handed me a John MacArthur tape that I got discipled. I would uh, get questions from eighth graders. I would tell them I don't know the answer. No Internet. Some of you younger guys have no idea what it's like not to have the Internet and the resources. No grace to you or anything like that. And so I'll find out in heaven. I don't know. I can argue both ways theologically, but... It doesn't matter in the sense, I mean, God knows when it was. And so whether it was at around age 11. And I'm very thankful. I grew up, and I tell people this, that I grew up in the ignorantly liberal Southern Baptist Church. And it was not defiantly liberal. It was ignorantly liberal because we weren't in the Word of God. Uh, we used to have a once-a-year winter Bible study for five nights. And we just didn't need to bring our Bible to church. And so pretty much everything was an evangelistic sermon. And come forward, give your life to the Lord. And I'm very thankful at least they did believe in heaven and they did believe in hell. They believed in sin. They believed in Jesus as the Savior. And so I say ignorantly liberal in the sense that that was pretty much the sum and substance of their entire theology that they knew. And also from time to time, no dancing and no playing pool. And I couldn't dance, and I did not play pool. So there was part of me that thought I was holy, and there was another part that I knew was not. Uh, so that's how I started. And then tell us how you met your wife. You were married in 1983, I understand. So it, it's, uh, uh, it's it's been about 35 years ago. How long, how long have you been married? But tell us the story of... Of meeting Betsy and uh, getting married. Oh boy, she'll get me for this. I've got about eight verses. I'll tell you my favorite. I tell people that Betsy was my attending nurse when I was born. That's not true, by the way. <laughs> and she patiently waited. Um, for those of you who've seen the Rocky movie, we were kind of the southern version of Rocky and Adrian. I would take Betsy out for a date, and she'd look out the window and not say much. Or we would go out to eat, and I would eat, and and she wouldn't. And I thought, I'm embarrassed. I am boring this woman to tears. And had no idea at all that she wanted to be. My idea of who I was going to marry was blonde-haired, blue-eyed, musical athlete. 
And God gave me a black-haired, brown-eyed, green-eyed, non-athletic, non-musical wife uh, that I am very thankful that he has done. When I ended up going to uh, Talbot Theological, I went there because they had Bible exposition. That's the only thing I wanted to study was Bible exposition. There were two schools uh had Bible exposition, and I got a catalog from Dallas, and they had a four-year program, and I thought, there ain't no way in the world I'm going to go to school for four years, and I was right. It went to something like 13, <laughs> and uh, but it went to, I was going to go to Talmud, and so when I was proposing to Betsy, I was telling her, asked her ahead of time, have you been out west? And she said she had been to Asheville, North Carolina. <laughs> What's going on? <laughs> and so I told her, I said, I'm going to give you a different definition of going out west if we get married. And so just, uh, and I told her to this day, I cannot guarantee anywhere in the world that we can live. If God had us go overseas, we were headed overseas. You need to think about this ahead of time. And so it has still been to that day. She's been a very faithful wife. She is behind the scenes. Uh, she's a gift of mercy. And just a, she has one of those, uh, just listing ears. And so she's a lot of time in high demand for people who are hurting. And so. Tell us a little bit about your family. You have a couple of kids. I have a daughter who has married someone for a year. For those of you who know the Sweetmans uh, or see the man with a C&I dog, you got a pretty good idea. If he's in his 50s or 60s, that's probably the Sweetmans. Uh, his son Dave became our son-in-law, and uh, he is very gifted in writing computer apps. And he ended up, he married my daughter Lauren, our daughter Lauren, and then they moved three houses down from Betsy's parents in the Cary, North Carolina suburb of Raleigh, in the Cary, North Carolina area. And I think I can say, without it being bleeped, that uh, I have a son who has just become a Green Beret about a year and a half ago. And so, boy, has he got some stories to tell. And boy, has he got some stories that he can't tell. And so uh, the most incredible transformation, our biggest delight on this too, is that our children are walking with the Lord. We were proud of our son, whether he was a camp counselor or a second grade teacher or anything else, as long as he's walking with the Lord. And so we've got one grandchild named Jackson and another one on the way. And so for years, Betsy has prayed three times a day facing east that God would finish. And then the thing is, she loves this. She was a part of some wives and eventually had her own table and just uh, has grown tremendously being out here. She counts it too. Just I put it as my third greatest blessing to be out here. And I don't mean that in any kind of trying to puff up the company name type of thing. But just the things we've got to do, study, people we've got to meet, uh, ministry opportunities, being involved, just a massive amount here. And so it was just a very much remarkable opportunity to be out here. Bessie kept hoping that they would make a, they would call and say, we're just kidding that, uh, about your husband being a faculty member. And so they never called, and for the first time in our life, we got a one-way ticket to the Burbank Airport, 
And so, um, anyway, here we are, 13 years later. Now, I'd ask you the, the question about your kids. You also have two who are with the Lord. Now, fill the men in on what happened. We were in Maryland, and uh, we found out that we were having identical twin girls. And we were just delighted, had our two children already. And again, there's just so much, so much they know now that they did not know at the time. Our twins, um, Betsy went to just a normal, um, checkup on her pregnancy. And they came back in and they said our twins had something called twin to twin transfusion. They shared a common vein. One got too much of mom's stuff. This is the layman's version. One got too much of mom's stuff and the other one didn't get enough. That's the first time I heard the word Internet. They said that uh, they were going to look on the Internet, and I asked Betsy, what's the Internet? They were going to look on the Internet and try to get up with some doctors in Denver and try a procedure that they thought would save at least one of the twins. And then Betsy went into labor about 24 hours later. And so just um, it's so surreal to go into there, just like the other deliveries, uh Going there, the heart monitor's going, and just you, know, you got her heart monitor and two other heart monitors. And it's like you're waiting for an execution to take place. And just prayed, I would, I would gladly, you know, Lord, let me take their place, please. I'd be glad to do so. And, of course, that didn't work out. That was one of the times of the class. Or, that's one of the times where God said no. And... um I don't know. I honestly do not know how people do this outside of the Lord. And as it turned out, we had been awake about 26 to 36 hours in a row. And we had a lot of quick decisions to make in the midst of this very unexpected event that was taking place. And one of the things we decided to do was to wait until heaven to have the first few of the twins. I don't think there's a right way. I don't think there's a wrong way. I know people who have lost children at birth or shortly after birth, and they're together for about two hours. And if that's what they, that's great. But then when it's time when the two hours is up, you know, that's a heart-wrenching as well. And so just kind of, you come out again different um, with that. That was our that was our first kind of aspect. And, and yet with that, I knew that God carried us. As bad as the grief was, we just could not get past that part of God holding us up. And we knew, we knew that was, that he was the one that was doing that. Now in that particular case, your wife, uh, undoubtedly, experienced the suffering more than you did as you know mother carries the child already for so long is so close to the 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 children in this case because they're forming in her womb how did you uh, lead your wife through that it was hard on you but particularly hard on her how were you a, a husband to her during that time and what would you say to the men here about going through things like miscarriages uh, and, and things of that nature I think that she's got her story as a mom, and I've got mine as a dad. 
by God's grace, I don't know what it's like to give birth. Um, and so from that aspect, praise God, that was taken care of in Genesis 3. Um, but what was so hard, I mean, for us, we had, we had two children already and just loved them dearly and just so looked forward to everything. And I think with Betsy with this, this is also, uh, we didn't have the mass media contact, so we certainly didn't have the people that we know around the world. Um, I don't know if there's a way that you can keep from just, for me, crying, for instance, would, it was about two months before I felt comfortable enough that, or I wouldn't go out in public and just all of a sudden tears would come. And I think the same thing with her. Uh, ironically, we had somebody at our church whose family, uh, the kid was dying of cancer, of leukemia. And the class I had at Washington Bible College prayed and prayed and prayed. And I went to see, they called the family in and said, he's not going to live. And he's alive today. And so the class at Washington Bible College just prayed, you know, just praised God for that. And so then when it happened to us, and they had already seen God intervene, that was one of those when that particular child with leukemia, uh, the doctor said, we didn't do this one. I mean, that's just a God thing. And so when we had people praying for us who knew us in Bessie's situation, and then God said no. And one thing I did do with this that um, I think if, I mean, the children really were such a bright spot. And we would laugh with them in one room and go cry in another room. And that you never know what it is that's going to set things off when you're like that. And what for me was different for her, sometimes it's just a look on someone's face or kindness. And just, you know, she prepared as a woman to be a mom. And you go through the whole thing. I think now they got better medicine uh, for for that. But you go through everything with regular birth and the milk coming in and stuff. And so... It was a it was a hard time, but again, I just do not I can't put myself how to do this without God not being a part of it. Now, sometime after this happened, you fell gravely ill, uh, you, and this yeah. was when you learned you had rheumatoid arthritis. So, tell us a little bit about that experience and how that has impacted your life since that time. And boy, that really was some experience. And what I had thought was that we had kind of suffered our trial or went through that. And then I ended up, uh, we lived in Wake Forest, North Carolina for a while. And I would drive five hours to the Washington, D.C. area and teach at Washington Bible College. In fact, the twins were going to make us a family of six. And we couldn't afford what they had up there in the D.C. area. And so my brother built us a house in the Wake Forest area uh, that was actually ended up one mile away from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary and the teaching there. And so we lived there for a long time, about four or five years before I finally ended up getting a position there. But I went to parties at Washington Bible College. I had a motel room and I would stay up there. And went to all these graduation parties, and I was by myself. And if you're by yourself and you're sick, that's a lot different than if you're with someone. 
because you don't, if you're talking to yourself, that's pretty bad. But I, I was watching of all things they had uh, on the TV, uh, the four channels that they had. They had a Dateline special on the Ebola virus. And they were showing the people having massive chills. And I had eaten something. No one else got sick. I was the only one that got sick. And so they were showing people having massive chills. And then they were showing people with all kinds of stomach things. They said, we won't go into details. And I was having all kinds of stomach things with that. I got out of bed and crawled to the infirmary that was right next to the, the bed where I had and got a thermometer with my, I was having chills and my teeth were smacking together. I was scared to go bite the thermometer in half. And so I put the thermometer in there and for four seconds or so. And I pulled it out and it had 103.8 uh, for the temperature. And my first thought was, I've got a bad thermometer. And what happened was that as best I could tell, it got up in the neighborhood of probably 105. And I, with this, I'll find out too. There was one thing where I was going and I'll find out in heaven with this that I knew I was at the point of death and I wasn't fearful. I just knew that death was right over on the next side. And then with this, uh, whether the big question would be obviously whether I'm going there or not. And when I get to heaven, I'll find out and God will say, yeah, that really was something where I was letting you know that you're at the point of death. Or God will say, no, that was just fever. And so I don't know, because I get it by myself. But I'd break out in these body sweats. I'd be talking to people later. And my fever dropped from about 105 down to about 103, and then down to about 101 eventually. And for about two weeks, I would call my wife and say, you know, I think I about died in the last couple of days. And no one was on campus at all. Uh, maybe one security guy was. And so what a lot of people... And so when I got finished with uh, that class, uh, what I started to say a while ago was that I would be talking to someone, and I would feel my whole body sweaty from the top of my head down to my shoes, like I was standing under a shower. And I'd watch from the people's expression, this unexplained, this guy's getting hosed down from the inside out. And so it happened about five or six times. But when I finished the summer school class there, came back to live in Wake Forest. Of all things, we were supposed, I was supposed to help my mother-in-law and father-in-law move furniture from Tarboro, North Carolina. And I got out of bed and I had a red dot on the base of my right toe. And I barely could walk. I mean, I got out of bed and I felt like I had a broken foot. And they had already rented the Ryder truck or the U-Haul truck. And I was 39 years old at the time. And I just couldn't see calling my in-laws and saying, I'm not able to help you move furniture today. I've got a red dot on the base of my big toe. Got up the next morning and it had moved to about an inch to an inch and a half long. With the doctor's urgent care. And they said, you've got a scarlet streak on your toe, which they were right, didn't know exactly what that was. 
And then they said, uh, if there's any kind of change with this, come back. When it got up the next morning, and that red line had made it from the base of my big toe up the inside of my ankle and about three inches past that part on the inside. And so we went back to doctor's urgent care, and they put me in the hospital for about a week. And then I went from zero joints of arthritis to somewhere in the neighborhood of 70 to 80 joints in a 24-hour period. And you can pick your number. One doctor came in and said, you, they do a process of elimination. Some of you in here are probably in medical background. They do a process of elimination of what it's not. The white blood cell count was not elevated. Wasn't some kind of infection with this. And all the other tests, just by elimination, they ended up saying, you've got rheumatoid arthritis. Then you've got the one in 5,000 case. One said you've got the one in 50,000 case. One doctor came in and said you've got the one in 500,000. So pick your number with that. But just very bizarre to go from zero joints to 70 to 80 joints. And I remember they came and got me out of bed. And I'm so thankful because if they had done it earlier, a few years earlier, they would have kept me in a wheelchair. And everything would have locked up. And they said, you've got to walk. And I said, you got to be kidding. And I had my morphine IV drip or whatever it was. And I would get off and I would walk hunched over and cry, walk down the hall. And they said, we'll come back and get you. And when I got out of the hospital after six days, and you know how sick you have to be to be in the hospital yeah. And so they sent me to physical therapy, and I thought that they were going to put warm towels on me and little massage fluffy things and feed me peeled grapes. And they said, you know, we got to, you know, these joints are going to lock open. They're going to lock, you know, unless you pull down here to this side. And I would break out in these sweats again. But I was 39 years old, and I wanted to play with my kids. And I was highly motivated. I did everything that they told me to do. And so I'd go off. I wasn't teaching there at the time, but Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary was one mile away. I would walk up there and cry as I walked through the campus. And they would see, who's this bent-over man walking and crying? And so just gradually, I got things back. Um, I was able to do about, I got about 98% back of what I lost ahead of time. Ran two marathons after that. Um, I had run, when I turned 30, I ran the San Diego Marathon when we were in seminary. I stood up straight when I turned 39 from arthritis. That was a lot harder. And then I got to be able to run. And so I ran the Richmond Marathon in Richmond, Virginia, uh, when I was 47 years old, 48. And just... I wanted to be the number one rheumatoid arthritic running that race. The number one 48-year-old, that was my goal. I didn't care if they had the motor cop coming, putting the cones in the basket. I didn't care. Push broom and all that. I just wanted to be. And so I had uh, one of the sweetest things. Students had signed up to pray for me in 15-minute segments. And I was just so thankful. Cried ahead of time. I was just so thankful to God to be able to run again. And so they should have prayed me out of bed the next day. Uh, all those muscles. <laughs> and, and that's not the only diagnosis. 
You have another one more recently, one that is responsible for the retirement from yeah. the seminary. Explain that one to us as well. Uh, the, I am dying from a genetic disorder. There are most people or a lot of people in here, uh, some of you would know Lou Gehrig's disease or ALS. I find that a lot of people don't know about Lou Gehrig's disease as he gets more and more removed out of the popular culture of America. And a lot of the people I talk to in foreign countries have no idea who Lou Gehrig is. And so um, Huntington's Korea is a derivative of sister disease, of ALS. Um, it's the worst of the ALS and Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. And it is one where you either have the gene or you do not have the gene. My mom died of this. Uh, aunts and uncles, cousins have died of this. And there's no cure for it. And uh, my, my family, have, we have watched people. In fact, I don't have a good answer other than the grace of God. I've got cousins younger than I am who have died of this five to ten years ago. And I'm 63 right now. And by God's grace, I have been seated, clothed, and in my right mind. And by God's grace, seated, clothed, and functional. And so very thankful. We try, you know, I didn't know. I was really hoping to kind of slide out for this. But it just became too much of a burden to, to be on my wife. And so... Uh, there's no cure for it. And also with this, there's nothing that you're going to do to hasten it, so to speak. Um, I'm going to try to stay as athletic, quote, as possible. And I can tell things. Um, I can tell that right now I have medicine, real strong medicine. I get a DUI if I got pulled. Um, I have real strong medicine. And it hides the symptoms for a little bit. And I'm able to come to school, finish this year. The school has been very gracious. They cut my position in half, my hours of teaching in half. And so just having Thursday to rest. And so I have tried to redeem the time. We made, we started with my wife and I. We worked our way outward. And so she finally gets to head back to North Carolina, a little bit different than what she had in mind with us. And so, like I said, if there was something that could be, um, if there was something I could do to keep this thing from progressing, I would do it. But there's nothing really I can do other than try to stay active. I walk when I pray, if I can. And I walk like a mumblebee. <laughs> I know they think I'm drunk uh, when I'm out. When I'm out walking with this. But one of the things, too, is that I have told people before that, you know, if, if I'm not going to, again, no suicide, anything like that, but I quit going to doctors for medical checkups, uh, for physicals, for colonoscopies, or that's what I told John MacArthur when I told him about this. And it may become a quotable quote around here. 
What good is it having a terminal disease if you can't skip colonoscopies and eat fried chicken? It's <laughs> and so I live by those words. And so my wife came in the other day. She said, what are you doing? I said, I'm eating lunch. She says, what is it? I said, it's peanut butter M&M's. <laughs> I mean, I eat stuff I never would have, eat, would have eaten before. Yeah. With that. Well, let's talk about not wasting the illness and, and what the illness brings to you, the blessings. Let's first talk about prayer. And I think it was in your book, The Cup and the Glory, you talk about being in the wilderness and that the wilderness is not a place so much as a kind of a state. Yeah. Uh, talk about how this has impacted your prayer life Compare your prayers to what they were even before the death of your yeah. twins to what they are today, having gone through all these other trials. And what had happened was what Brad was talking about with the cup and the glory was that we went through a time where God blessed everything and opened door and opened doors and opened doors and just blessed and knew it was him doing it. And then the twins died, and we thought that was our trial. And then I got crippled with arthritis on disability seven months. And we thought, well, that's our trial. And then I got set on the shelf ministry-wise. And I understand the difference from an experiential basis of what it is to have God open the door and what it is to have God close, repeatedly close the doors. And no explanation that I could give to my wife as to what we were doing. We had started off in Raleigh, gone to the Anaheim area where Talbot is, gone to Dallas, gone up to the D.C. area. And we had moved back to North Carolina, and I we had lost two children along the way. I had lost some physical capacities for a while, arthritis-wise. A dissertation that wasn't finished, and no ministry opportunities. And that last one, it just killed me. And it wasn't that God had to use me. It was just that he had in the past... And I did not know why he chose not to. And that was just very, very hard. Everything I wrote in the cup and the glory, I didn't know. And I wrote it to people who heard it. I wrote it myself. When I turn it into publishers and they say, who did you write the, the cup and the glory for? What they're talking about generally is what audience, you know, is a church, is it a college thing? And so when I wrote the cup and the glory, they said, who did you write it for? And I would always type in my name. I wrote it for me. If I wrote it for Greg Harris, I typed that in. I don't think they liked the answer, but that was the truthful answer. And God walked me slowly out of this. And again, emails were just coming into vogue. And the Internet was a little bit. And so I didn't have a lot of people to talk to about this. And then I started, uh, the internet had come out and emails is what I started to do with that is to give it to people and say, here's my price. Pray for me and pass it on to somebody else. I naively thought the book was either good enough to publish or not. I had no idea. It was kind of like American Idol that uh, there's a business factor to most people with that. And so when I did the cuff and the glory, these were things that God taught me that sometimes I was bucking, kicking, and screaming. I was nodding. I mean, just one lady read the book and said that I came through there sterlingly. 
And I viewed myself coming through there with those cartoons of the guy that's crawled across the desert on his stomach and the skull of the cows in the background and the cactus and the vulture on top. That's what I felt like when I got through there. But by the time that I was done, I mean, when I wrote it for myself, it wasn't until chapter nine. And I thought, I wonder if anybody else is going through the same thing. Because, again, no, no emails at the time to begin with. And then started hearing from different people in different countries and, and just publishers would turn it down and I'd hear from somebody in China or just wherever it would end up. And so I, I think a lot of the prayers just, a lot of it so much depends on the situation. And part of this was so hard because Betsy just had one question that continues to this day. How? And I don't know. It's my best answer that I have given for a long, long time. It's probably a little bit longer answer. Well, yeah, just even coming back to that question, your your prayer life. And the reason I ask this is you have been a model for prayer for many seminary students. You've taught a class on prayer, and, and we know you from some of your other articles that you've written and so on as a man of prayer. And I'm just wondering how... How did your prayers change in their intensity, in their focus, as a result of the suffering? Let me back up the start about how I ended up walking and praying. Because I didn't, I actually finally figured out for, because I knew, I ran track in high school and, and at a small college ran track. Um, when I was praying through when I was single about whether to go into seminary or not, I ended up loving teaching eighth grade, ended up coaching track there. Our track teams just killed people that we ran against. And because I was a Christian and our track team won, I got invited to speak to the speaker places. An abysmal reason to be invited to speak. I didn't know my hair to my ham bone, as just about anybody else around the world stole from John MacArthur what was available to steal. I didn't, I had this pressure about, I wanted to get things right. And I ended up, I was living with my parents and I was teaching school and they went somewhere and I had about a week and I just could not sleep. Someone had messed with my noise thing. <laughs> Some Canadians had made their way down and and so I, I just, I wrestled with this thing about going to seminary or not. And there was a part of me that wanted to come back and teach eighth grade and coach. And you could, uh, I had the idea, the ignorant idea, that I was going to go learn all you can learn about the Bible in a year. Learn that. And the first thing you learn in the seminary is how much you're to learn and the second thing you learn with this is how little you know. And so for that, I ended up, I, could, I went through periods of insomnia, and some of it, there was a kind of bad satanic type of testing with this. And this was not, but this was wrestling about whether to go to seminary or not. And I walked Avent Perry Road by NC State University in Raleigh, I would try to sleep, and I couldn't sleep. And I would walk and pray. And then about going to seminary, and finally decided, okay, God, I'll go. 
And then I thought that was it. I prayed that I'll go and then slept real well after that. But then God put roadblocks. One was the surgery that I had to have to correct a birth defect. And then God brought Betsy into the picture as well. And so from that time praying to go into seminary, it's about three to four years later that it actually did go. And so from that as a, at least a babe in Christ or a young man in Christ with that, I really, I wanted this to be God's decision. And so I just wanted to make sure that what I was doing was what he would have me do. Although I have certainly not done that on a regular basis. Certainly not done it perfectly. I'll say it that way. And so it just became to me a natural thing to do. Um, I got to run in the neighborhood of 60, 65,000 miles and finally hung it up with that. But most, a lot of that was, was praying or thinking through things or writing. Uh, to follow up on that, would would you say that one of the reasons why God sends trials among many is that we're we don't pray enough and he longs for that communion and it's the trial that actually brings us to our knees and then creates in us the habit of prayer which doesn't normally exist among those who feel they're pretty independent and that's kind of where I was before all this stuff that happened to us that led to the cup of the glory I just thought the blessings of God are going to be the open doors and see visible fruit and such. And so when you're put in a position where you just, your only options are kind of John 6, where else can we go? Only you have the words of eternal life. You either give up or you press on with the Lord. And so just, I have never claimed to know everything that God has for us um, by any means at all. But I do think that God put us in a situation. I was an English Lent major, and I thought everybody loved to write until I married my wife, uh, who was also an English Lent major, went to Carolina, and yet she hated writing, which I don't know English Lent major, but that's just a different deal. But I thought everybody could write until I again married Betsy and found out that that's that not necessarily the case. And so for this, I just, I would write down stuff as God impressed it upon me. And sometimes you're praying for people. Sometimes you're praying for people's salvation. Sometimes you're praying about particular decisions that have to be made. And I think what God does is take us out of our comfort zone. And that you'll go through seasons where you do see a lot of blessings. And you'll also go through seasons that you see that, like for us now, we are entering a new season and kind of a final season. And if God takes me in some other way than Huntington, again, not going to commit suicide, not going to defame God's name that way. But if there's a heart attack or an aneurysm or anything along those lines, I used to say, bury me happy, but I'm not sure that being buried now is even uh, to run out of places in North Carolina anyway. (laughs) Speaking uh, further on prayer, uh, Job says, Though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. Nevertheless, I will present my argument before him. Now, uh, 
when is it, as we think of prayer and going through the sufferings, Job obviously went through a lot. You've gone through some as well. Uh, when is it right to, uh, to, to say, Lord, I'm going to present my argument before you, or I'm going to, I'm going to ask questions. Is that a biblical component of prayer, or is that something that the, the questions, the, the questioning, why, Lord, are you doing this to me, is that expressing a complete lack of faith should be repented of and should never be found in biblical prayers. I had a student from Italy, John Luca, some of you may know. Uh, he has since graduated and is in Italy. His mother came down with leukemia. And John Luca went in and talked to her and said, you ought to have more faith in God, you ought to trust him and all, all this. And then he came down with the same leukemia that his mom had. And boy, did his, he said, I will never say to anybody else what he had said, you know, in that particular situation. I think so much depends on the attitude. I mean, I prayed for the twins all the way up to the time that they were pronounced dead. And I went around and prayed for the different moms giving birth to the babies that I didn't know while we waited for our twins to die. I just think that so much of this depends on the situation that's there. And one thing for me that ended up with this was that we are supposed to comfort others with the comfort that we yourself have received. And if you have never been in a situation to receive God's comfort, then you're not able to pass that on. And that being said, we are all uniquely made. God has something in mind for all of us. Me, Brad, everybody, God's got something in mind. And I don't think that what I do is more important than what you do if you're walking with the Lord. Honestly, I don't think it's that more important. Obviously, we have a stewardship and we have a grave responsibility, and we have to give an account before the Lord. But God gifts his church all over in different ways. And so, you know, again, going back to the attitude to be able to comfort others with the comfort that we ourselves received. And sometimes that's a long time. I mean, just could not believe that our, looking back now, it was a three and a half year period from the time that the twins died until God opened the door ministry was. And just could not explain it to anybody. And people that had in class would say, are you, are you teaching somewhere? And at the time I was not. And they said, why not? And I said, I don't know. They say, are you preaching anywhere? And at the time I wasn't. And they would say, yeah, and why not? I don't know. And so they just, again, the circumstances will do one of two things. Will drive you to your knees or sometimes harden your heart. The Lord drove you to the knees. The circumstance drove you to the knees. What would you summarize as the main lessons in addition to the need for prayer and being ready to comfort others who are undergoing affliction? What were some of the key lessons you've learned through these major tragedies or these very difficult times of of pain in life? I think what I learned was to keep praying even during the happy times and the good times. I look forward to the time with God. I would get up early for the most part. I used to. The medicine makes me sleep in a little bit differently now. 
but it was something that I got. I did it before the phone would ring, the kids would get up. And again, sometimes you can't do it on a regular ongoing basis of everything doesn't work out geographically. Sometimes storms and other matters, sometimes sickness. But I have just, I found if I uh, stayed on my knees, arthritis-wise, that didn't work out. I found that if I walked around somebody's house, I would be distracted by what was on the on the wall. And so I would sometimes, we had a screened-in porch uh, when we lived in North Carolina. And during the snow time, I'd walk back and forth on the porch just because that was, again, that was what I was just used to doing. But it just became such a natural reflex to do and to spend it with God. When I came out here, having gone from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, living nine-tenths of a mile from where our house was, before they dropped the speed limit to 35, I could get out of the faculty parking lot, put my car in neutral. The one stoplight was green, go down the hill, up the hill, turn left in the subdevelopment, into the garage, never put in gear the whole time. So for us to come out here and then come to L.A., and everybody in North Carolina would say, what, especially their unsaved relatives, why would you come out to the L.A. area? Uh, you know, we're not exactly L.A. types. as uh, We're not Hollywood types, we'll put it L.A. And I've got no class or culture whatsoever. I have to borrow my wife's. Um, and so for this, people say, do you want to live in Los Angeles? And the thing is with this, this is where God has called us. I about ran over. This was, I didn't have GPS at the time, didn't have a Garmin or anything like that. About ran over a motorcycle cop my first week of school. Felt my heart go boogie out there. He stuck that boot up to my window and kicked it. He said, what are those mirrors for? And I just thought, what are we doing out here? But what made peace about what I made peace with on this? Now, this is an if in the 11th commandment. Thou shalt not misquote the professor is invoked with this. If God were to say to any of us, would you drive me 20 miles to Sun Valley, or drive me to Los Angeles. Not that he would need any help, not that he would need to ride. But if God said, will you drive me to L.A.? All of us would jump at the chance. And so that's how I made peace with the traffic. I wasn't driving to L.A. I was spending time with God. And sometimes that time was longer than expected. And sometimes shorter. And it just changed my perspective completely with that. That's a great, a great uh, lesson. Uh, Asaph in Psalm 73 verse 15 talks about how if he would have shared his struggle uh, with the children of God, it, it would have betrayed them. Now, in your case, going through some of the struggles that you have, obviously there's, there's down moments when you feel your weakness. Are there times when you have to deliberately say, I can't tell other people about this because it would not help with their growth in Christ, especially as it relates to children? Now, your children are older yeah. and they can handle these things. But what about young children? And 
But when a father is going through a time of a tremendous trial, it may be physical, it, it may be relational, it may be something else. Is there a time when they have to be very, very careful not to uh, describe their struggle with their children? I think it so much depends on the situation at hand and on the kids themselves. Uh, when I wrote The Cup in the Glory, the first glory book about lessons on suffering and the glory of God, my children were, I think one was six and one was four. And I could not hide the fact from them that daddy was sick. They went to a Christian school where my wife taught and they prayed for me. They weren't real sure when I was in the hospital that I would be able to walk normally. Again, they said, we think so, we hope so, but we can't guarantee. And so my children knew I was sick. And so they would pray for me. They would pray at their, or at least when our daughter was in kindergarten or first grade, and then our son was in kindergarten, they would pray for me. And I was glad to have it and glad to talk with them. That was something that I couldn't, they couldn't understand everything, but they understood that daddy was sick. And one of the things I did on that rehab was I wanted to play with my children. And that, and they knew that I wanted to be you know, able to play to, uh, with them. I think that it is a, just the, well, one of the harder things that they had. My son had been with the same kindergarten class from, uh, from kindergarten class to being a rising junior was when we came out here. And our daughter went to the master's college at the time she graduated high school. And I told both of my children, none of them, nobody wanted to come out here in my family. My wife, my two children did not want to come out here. I told them, you will probably meet your spouses out here in all likelihood, and they did. Uh, but none of them wanted to come out. And so it was actually, for that part, it was tough for them. And what Betsy would say is that it's Greg's decision. And what I would say, no, it's not. It's God's decision. And she will say, how are we going to know? And I said, I don't know. And to make things short and, and accurate with this, God closed doors that were previously open that made it so clear to people around us that we were supposed to come out to the Master Seminary. But we were looking out, or when we got that one-way ticket to the Burbank Airport in this during the summer, and we're flying over Arizona or New Mexico someplace, and you see the brown haze out there, and just think, what have we done? And their children are crying in the back, and Betsy's crying. It's a good day all the way around. And so, you know, that being said, yeah, it turned out to be tremendous blessings to our children, even though it was very hard for them at the time. And we were going to go where God led, and that remained to this day, that's still part of that. Uh, related to your wife and, and children, as you uh, now think that your days are are numbered, you, you know that better than the rest of us. And there, there's a blessing with that because, uh, you know, I've, yeah. if I think of my typical day, I think I'm healthy and I don't think I'm going to die today and I don't think I'm going to die anytime soon. You think of life a little differently and that, allows you to see things more circumspectly. 
As you talk about that with your wife and children, if you could let us into uh, this conversation a little bit, what kind of things do you talk about knowing that they don't have a lot of time left with you? Uh, if you can't sleep through white noise, and it was actually an Amazon rainforest app, you're probably going to die early death. Yeah. <laughs> I thought I was that night. Yeah. Uh, you know, with the Psalm 139 that our days are numbered, I think what people, when, when you have an opportunity like this, uh, more and more, it was an interesting change in the seminary, and I got put in charge of teaching more advanced classes, teaching masters of theology classes, instead of kind of the standard masters of divinity classes. And what happened is that I got less and less involved with the students' lives. It wasn't my choice. It's how it all worked out. It had all worked out the way God wanted it to write out. Because it allowed me to write uh, a lot more than I had before. Um, because I did not have as much responsibility with the students. Now, I had known for years that this was in all likelihood. My, uh, I have a doctor, medical brother, doctor, middle one, it's not saved at this point, that did not want me to get the Huntington's test because I could say honestly that when they say, have you been diagnosed with Huntington's, then I could say at the time, no, I had not. For disability, we had to have the genetic marker. And so I have tried to redeem the time. And yet, it, you know, it's been a precious time. It has just been some good, some quality time with God. Uh, and in the same way, uh, redeeming the time and using it and kind of praying each day, what it, show me, dear Lord, what you want me to do today. And it has just turned out to be a prolific time during that. And, and with your wife and kids, how has how have you redeemed the time with them? Okay, that's a good question. Thank you for that. I forgot about that part. Here's what we did with the Huntington's, and I tried and very thankful that I, I'm utterly amazed that we were able to keep it as secretive as possible. But what I told Betsy is with this. I'm pretty sure I've got this. She was sure I had it by everybody who saw me, who knows on that side of the family, who has seen the 10 to 15, 20 people. You know, we, it's been on that side of the family long before public records, you know, way, way back when. But I told Betsy, it starts with you and me here at the kitchen table, nobody else. And I'm pretty sure I have Huntington's. And she knew very well what that meant. She saw my mom die, was involved with that, and some aunts that I had, again, cousins and such. And I said, what we do is expand our circle uh, outward of who we tell. And, of course, that meant that our children were the next ones that, that we told. But I told her, we go outward with this, but it starts with us. This starts with you and me, and there are so many things about this at that particular time we didn't know, and we have gone through all the disability stuff that we're supposed to do 
in due diligence with that. And uh, of all things, we would let different people know. We let John MacArthur know, of course, and Nathan Business and Rich Gregory. Um, let we let Christians that we knew and trusted around the world. But some of this, I waited to tell people, and Betsy would say, "Why are you waiting to tell?" And I said, "I'm waiting to tell because I've told friends that I'm dying from this." And really good friends have wept for a week. And I just didn't see any reason to make somebody sad earlier than kind of a need-to-know basis. And actually how it came public, as you know, we used to do the registration of the classes. I was walking up to the third floor where I had my class. I was walking up, and a student saw me about 100 yards away. And he said, Dr. Harris, your classes are not listed in the fall semester. Are you sick? And I'm right there on the second, you know, on that second floor in between. And I thought, hmm, I guess other people are going to be asking this too. And so that's when we went ahead and, and made the announcement. And um, I was able to get so much work done. And I appreciate, I'm not, and again, I'm not dropping hints on this. Uh, I've, I've received some wonderful emails and letters of encouragement from students I've had in the past and people that we know. And there was a time when I was working on different things, writing, where that would have been kind of a hindrance more than if you really locked in to something. And so now, again, not dropping hints on this, but now it's a good time to read those. As they come in, uh, and I take those to heart. I take that as part of the ministry of the body of Christ. It's just a great ministry to have for that. Uh, for men thinking of the, the future and at some point, too, we're all going to die unless the Lord raptures us. And some men will out, outlive their spouse and, and sometimes even their children most cases not. How should men be preparing their families for their own deaths? Well, the thing is with this, too, is that you don't need Huntington's to die. God can take you home in a number of different ways. I would certainly concentrate. It's not just us who are in, quote, full-time Christian ministry redeeming the time. I think it's great, these short-term missions. What a blessing. That will be to those different countries and churches that you go to. And so in doing this, it is, uh, well, we just don't know. None of us do on this. I had students that I taught back in eighth grade. I had one of my favorite students, and they had twin girls, and they were 20 years old, and they got into a fight argument in the car. And the one on the right side stepped out in front of a car going about 60 or so. Killed her on the spot. That poor twin girl heard her sister get hit by a car and kill. I mean, we just don't know. What, again, that's not to be gloomy or you know, I hope that my children have a long life. Uh, I'm, but I hope, that, again, they'll walk with the Lord, you know, in the midst of this. There's a sense in which when we think of death and uh, pr- preparation for it, that in some ways... Those who do have advanced warning that they've been given six months or a year, 
are, are more blessed in a way, even though we'd hate to hear that, and a lot of us would say it'd sooner just be taken immediately, but they can get their 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 lives Absolutely. right. And, and more than that, they can prepare those closest to them for meeting the Lord. And and so there's a there, there's a blessing that comes with having a little bit more certainty on when that time's coming. T- talk a little bit about that and what you're doing to prepare your wife and kids for your departure. I have tried my best to get my spiritual house in order. I have tried my best to get my physical house in order. And on this, unbelievers look at this totally different, differently. Uh, my unsaved brother looks at this and kind of, you need to squeeze every bit of life that you can out of this. And we're going to try to, quote, squeeze life or at least redeem the time. But we're not going to do all these things to prolong the life in any kind of way. Not going to do any, I've got my medical stuff all filled out so Betsy will not have to make any of the decisions. And I don't even know if they played this show in Canada or these people are old enough to know this, but at my funeral, if I have one and they can do with my body whatever they want to do, whatever is easiest, but for my funeral, I have thought about Michael Card, Emmanuel, some of Fernando Ortega songs like Beyond Eternity. But some of the younger ones probably will not be old enough to remember. I want the theme from the Jeffersons played at my funeral. Well, we're moving on up, moving on. <laughs> One of the great hymns of the faith. Right, so if you were to change a few words I mean, that's, that's, to the deluxe apartment in the sky, Sounds a little bit like New Jerusalem. And I think what happens on this prayer, and I'm not to make a lie. I mean, I know I am saved. I have no doubt about that whatsoever. It's not so much that I'm talking about death. It's only that death is going to be in all likelihood unless the rapture takes place. Death is going to be the portal that most of us will go into God's presence. Those of us who are saved. And whenever that is. I was I went to Australia to do some conferences there, and they when we got to the I forget I think it was Sydney or Melbourne. When we got there, they announced they said that there has been a bomb threat called in on this plane, and that we were not allowed to dock. And so we stayed out there for an hour or so. Eventually, they came and arrested a Muslim-looking man and woman and walked them off. And I'm, it was kind of an eerie quiet there with the plane full of people and not a whole lot of conversation going on that could be heard. And I'm sitting there wondering, this is either my day to go home to be with the Lord or not. And so if it's not, then I'm going to go to go to my different places. I was supposed to go speak in Australia. Same way, if that happened to be that it was my day, then I hope that bomb is right underneath my seat. <laughs> you know, would have been my preference for that. Some some men will talk about fear of death. Do you, do you fear that at all? You know, I, I don't. Uh, and, and why? And and this is where the gospel comes in. Absolutely. You know, explain how the gospel removes that fear of death. My mom was a simple country woman. I don't mean simple, dumb. And I'm not trying to over-glorify her. 
I cannot remember ever seeing her sin. My children have seen me sin. I saw my dad sin, all kind of things. But I cannot remember my mom ever sinning. And again, I know she was saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, saved by the blood of the Lamb. And so for her, it was a homecoming. She had fought the disease for a long, long time. She wanted to go home. She wanted to go home and be with the Lord. And the older I get, the more people are up there in heaven that I know. And I feel like some of the biblical characters, you, you get into a book like First Peter and you go through that. I feel like Peter's one of my best friends that I have ever not met at this particular point, but consider him, again, a, a dear friend. I, when you see the people on the beaches at L.A., and they're 70 or 80, I don't know which is worse, it's the men or the women that are 70 or 80, and they're trying to look 20, and they are losing the battle uh, horribly. And so for us, we are going home, all of us, relatively speaking, one way or the other. You know, I hope, I used to want to live to be 120, because that's what Moses was, until I started going to nursing homes, and then kind of cut that in half. Uh, but I just I, more and more long to go home and be with the Lord. And again, not suicidal, not going to do anything like that. But if it's like, for instance, if they found out I did have cancer, we may look as it relates to pain management. That may be a different deal depending on what it was. But just one way or the other, that's to me, is not so much to focus on dying, it's to focus on living. And just eternally so. And I really can't wait. I can because I have to. And I think on this, if you're in a situation where you know that your days are numbered, then I really do ask God every day, you show me what it is you want me to work on today. And so this is part of what he wanted me to work on today. Our time is uh, almost over. I want to talk just for a few moments about your books. Uh, you have five books in, in, in a glory series. The first one, The Cup and the Glory, Lessons on Suffering and the Glory of God. Second one, The Darkness and the Glory, His Cup and the Glory from Gethsemane to the Ascension. The Stone and the Glory, Book 3, Lessons on the Temple Presence and the Glory of God. Um, the Stone and the Glory of Israel, an invitation to the Jewish people to meet their Messiah, and the Face and the Glory, lessons on the invisible, invisible God and his glory. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, what each of those books is about. We don't have a lot of time left, but if you could summarize the thesis uh, of each of those five books, what would they be? Oh, very, very briefly, uh, The Cup and the Glory is my spiritual diary as God walked me out of the wilderness and got my head and my heart screwed on straight. The Darkness and the Glory is based off two questions, and I used to say it was before me. I know now it was God that was doing this. In Matthew 16, for the first time, Jesus says he's going to die. And Peter says, no, you're not. Jesus says, thank you, Peter, NIV, sorry, wrong verse. <laughs> you know the story with us, that instead, you know, get behind me, Satan, you're a stumbling block to me. Everything about Matthew 16 makes sense. If Jesus goes to the cross, Satan's head is crushed. 
So he'll use Peter as a means to keep that from happening. And this is what I wrestled with, and I didn't keep notes, so I didn't know I was going to be talking about this later on in uh, Lone Write Books. But for this, why then in Luke 22.3 did Satan enter Judas in order to bring about the crucifixion? Matthew 16, don't go to the cross. Makes perfect sense. Luke 22, come to the cross. The last thing that Satan would do would want Jesus to go to the cross. And yet he enters into Judas in order to bring about the crucifixion. There's a biblical answer to that. And by the way, the first three books were all ten years before they were published. John MacArthur was my 19th reader for The Darkness and the Glory, and he turned out to be a pretty significant reader. And just, it was uh, the perfect timing for him and the perfect timing for the book. Bessie would say, why are you writing these things? And at the time, because publishers wouldn't publish them. And I quit turning them in and I kept waiting for publishers. And so finally, God raised up the publisher that he would have with us. And all the royalties go either to scholarships here or to the TMAIs. And I wanted to be able to talk to people about this. But the second thing, just very briefly about the darkness and the glory, you have a six-hour crucifixion, three hours in the light, three hours in the darkness. Everything Jesus says, he says in the light, the darkness approaches or abides. Whatever it was, he says nothing. The darkness leaves. He says his last words. So why does Satan change his tactics? And why was the darkness over the cross? And all that leads to the glory of God. I thought that was going to be the end of it. People say, how many are you going to write? And I say, however many God wants me to write. The third one, the stone and the glory, most people don't know this. But the stone is the second most used word to describe the Messiah. Lamb, number one. And of course, you can find all kinds of uh, references but what most people don't understand, I think it's one of the best kept secrets in the Christian world. Stone. Have you never read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord story is marvelous in eyes. So I wrote the stone into glory, knowing God is under no obligation whatsoever, but I wrote it for people before the tribulation, but especially for people in the tribulation. Again, God does not have to use this under no obligation whatsoever. I had someone read, uh, someone whom I respect dearly. One of my dearest friends is Bob Provost, and I've kept him out of this conversation for a long time. But I think since he's pretty much retired or gone emeritus for Slavic gospel ministry, Bob Provost read the stone into glory. He went, I went up to him. I've never done this before. I was in chapel and I heard him speak. I and mean, there were things in the stone into glory that were going to give him more biblical, you know, biblical ammunition to use. And so I begged him, will you please read the stone into glory? He ended up reading it. And I won't tell you all the things that he said about it, but he came back very affirmative. And then he said, would I do something? And I said, what is it that you want? He said, will you take out, there's so many Jewish people who I have, I want to read this, but if it's got anything Christian in, it, in the first few chapters, they won't read it. Will you take out the Christian part 
and write it from and replace that part with an Old Testament part. And I had prayed through, and one of the saddest things that happened, and you were here at that time, someone stole my Bible that I had started a seminary with and just about broke my heart. It felt like a death in the family and a removal of my right arm, kind of a combination. I wept over that Bible, and it made me get ready to go teach all things Genesis at a TMAI. And it made me read Genesis in a brand new light. So when Bob Provo says, can you take out the part of the New Testament? I mean, you had woman, Jesus and the woman at the wells in the stone and the glory chapter two. And I tell people this, anything that we took out, we put back in later. And also for this, that we, anything with this too, that once we come to Jesus in chapter three, we don't take, change his name anymore. And so that is uh, the the stone in the glory. I asked Bob, what are we going to call this? We cannot call this the stone in the glory of a Jewish evangelistic version, which is what it is. So he said, let's call it the stone in the glory of Israel. And I said, let's subtitle it an invitation for the Jewish people to meet their Messiah. I'm praying that God will use this in the tribulation. I pray he'll use it with 144,000. I know that under no obligation whatsoever with this, but that's what that was written for. And also for Jewish advances now. And then the, the fifth one just came out. Just came out. I, I did, a, or I have a non-profit ministry that I went in bucking, kicking, and screaming, did not want to do, won't go into details, but I just did not. English lit major. I uh, just did not want to do a nonprofit, and we've done it for about 12 years now, and God's done some really deep things you know, through that. But I'm turning that, because I'm dying, I'm turning that ministry over to some people. I prayed through about whether God will have anybody step up and take over that, and people have done that. One is a retired CPA to take over the, the part. And so they were going through the notes, and they said, what's this about the face and the glory? And I said, well, I started it 10 years ago. Uh, I forget whether surgeries or wasp or some kind of something else out of the pit, that something came along. For whatever reason, I just never finished it. And they said, we really think you ought to finish it. With the face and the glory. You've got Bible verses that critics use that say it's contradictions. Because it's very clear in Scripture, nobody has seen God at any time. It's impossible to see God, and yet you got things. Isaiah 6, I saw the Lord, high exalted. In Deuteronomy, or in Exodus, rather, where you've got Moses, who used to speak to God face to face, and then no one can see my face and live. So for the face and the glory of that, and I'll end it with this. Also for this one, here's the second part that ties in, and all this ties in uh, together. The face and the glory in Luke 22 again, days before Passover. It says Passover was approaching. Satan entered into Judas. And yet in John 13:27 on the Last Supper, in the upper room discourse, Satan enters into Judas a second time. Why is that? 
Why did Satan enter into Judas the second time? Where did he go in the meantime? Why is that important? And how does that tie in with the life of Jesus? And that's what the face in the glory deals with. These books, the men, if they're interested to read these books, they can get a copy at uh, the Grace Bookstore. Is that correct? I'm not sure about the Grace Bookstore. I haven't been in that in okay. a while, uh, or Internet, or somewhere around. You know, all kind of ways you know, to get the books you know, nowadays. Excellent. As we draw this to a close, how can we pray for you specifically uh, in uh, the days to come? Oh, want to finish well. Um, I just, I, I know my Redeemer lives. And I know that his ways are right. There's a lot of unknowns that I wish I could answer what my wife wants to do. And so um, I would definitely, anything, pray about fruitfulness. And that God, if they, if y'all do think about that, I do pray that God will use the books in the tribulation. One of the neatest things about the tribulation, if there are going to be neat things, is the time of massive evangelism. And every one of the martyrs that you run into in Revelation 6 and every one of the 144,000, this is an if. Thou shalt not misquote the professor. This is an if with us. If the rapture is upon us, all of those people are born, and every one of them are unsaved at the present time. And that's why the, the tribulation, the gospel, is going to go out to the entire world. And so, again, God is under no obligation at all. Uh, I, I just pray for fruit from that put it that way. And then finally, uh, there might be somebody here who would say, I, I don't have the confidence that you have. I, I don't think I'm headed to heaven if the Lord would put me in an accident on my way home tonight. Give them the gospel right now. We were in Isaiah class going through this at the end that all our acts of righteousness are but filthy rags. Everything from false religions that go all the way back to Genesis 4 up to the present time, you are either working your way to heaven or God stepped out of his creation to become the sacrifice that we could never do. We were sinners before we even knew the word sin. And with this, I am, all of us are contaminated by the effects of sin. And only a fool would say in his heart that they haven't done so. The Holy Spirit convicts of sin. You've got it. Righteousness, you don't. Judgment is coming. And so I, for me, I know that there is one perfect sacrifice who lived the life I could not live, who died the death I could not do, and that he offers his own self. And what more could God possibly give? And so for this, you are either working your way to heaven and going to be surprised at that. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, do we not do? They list things that they did. 
Instead of saying, Lord, Lord, did you not do? He drank the cup that the Father had given him. And the cup that he had contained everything necessary for our salvation. And when he said, it is finished, everything necessary for our atonement was. What a wonderful Savior is Jesus our Lord. What a wonderful shepherd is he. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful evening that you've given us tonight. We thank you for the wisdom that you've given to your servant. We thank you for the opportunity that we've had to hear it. I pray that you take the words that that, uh, Dr. Harris has shared with us, that you would implant them deeply, that you would not allow us to go further home tonight without a serious consideration of our own destiny and and where we stand in relation to you. And we pray that this message that Dr. Harris has closed with, this gospel, would would be very vivid in our minds and that if there's anyone here tonight who would not know where they would go if they would die, we pray that you'd grant them the gift of repentance and faith and they would get right with you casting all of their hope upon Jesus, claiming him as their only solution to their sin problem and trusting in him fully, placing all their love in him as their only Savior and Lord. And for those of us who have already done that, we pray that this gospel message would not be one that would grow old, but rather all the more vivid, especially as all of us are now closer to the moment of meeting your son Jesus than we have ever been. And may that reality spur us on to fruitfulness. May that reality spur us on to readiness, to watchfulness and vigilance. We pray for Dr. Harris in these days that he has. You know how many are left for him. You have planned this before the foundation of the world. We do pray you'd give him the strength and discernment he needs both to Uh, serve you well to be fruitful and also at the same time to rest in the wonderful promise that he has, the hope that he has, the future that awaits him. We ask all these things in the wonderful name of Jesus our Lord. Amen.